Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do thank you and praise you for this day that you have made and for the worship that we are able to engage in today and for your word, which contains all truth. And so, O God, may your spirit inspire the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. And friends, as we continue through the um, parts of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, the lesson for today that I'm going to share with you is from the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of God. (coughs) Excuse me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, <coughs> every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To Paul, there are two things that would characterize a church that is pleasing to God. Well, first, the church should have a spirit of unity. People should not just work together, but should love one another and be in harmony with one another. Also, the members should act from proper motivation, and that's what we'll be looking at today. Now first though, let me talk about like-mindedness. Like-mindedness comes from having the same goals and consequently the same priorities. And In previous weeks I've talked about things like Christian priorities, seeking what is good. Paul reasoned that the Christian faith was the best basis on which to operate if one wished to produce a spiritually homogenous church. And he began this next section of his letter to the Philippians by suggesting that the members of the church at Philippi examine their own relationships with Christ and with the other Christians in the congregation. (coughs) Now, motivation is a subtle matter. Satan uses many methods to hinder the work of God and discount the personal effectiveness of a Christian's witness. 
Someone once said that if Satan cannot get us to do the wrong thing, he will get us to do the right thing with the wrong attitude and for the wrong motive. And doesn't that describe what we know of, say, the Pharisees uh, that Jesus often contended with? So many of them wanted to do the right thing, but they did it with the wrong attitude and the wrong motive. And that happens, of course, in the church as well. Now, Paul warns the Philippian Christians of the ever-present temptation to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And so he is urging the Christians at Philippi to focus unselfishly on the needs of their fellow Christians and to minimize the fulfilling of their own personal wishes, which naturally goes against human nature. So it's hard, but it still it can be done, and of course it should be done. Now, how does one, though, acquire that skill which does not come naturally to us to be unselfish and to think of others first? Well, Paul does not give a a seminar on how to do it, but he turns to a personal example. He says to look at Jesus, to see how he acted, to see what he did when it came to himself and others. And there's no better example than that. Now, Paul would have Christians forget their own privileges. And to do that, we can look no further than Jesus himself and how he acted. Now, Jesus was the very Son of God, God incarnate. He existed as God before he was born. Um, He always has been the second member of the Trinity. He existed before his birth in Bethlehem with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you can't get much better when it comes to that for status. And yet Jesus left that behind in order to be born. He gave up for a time his eternal glory so that he could live as one of us. He was born, we know the circumstances of his birth, He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in a stable, born in very poor conditions. And that shows that he did not consider his equality with God to be something that he had to hold on with a deadly grasp. He was able and willing to let it go. And so he lived in the form of a servant. And he existed in the likeness of humanity. And not only that, not only was his very life a sacrifice, he was willing to go even further and have a sacrificial death. He underwent death on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of mankind. And so can we ever think of a person who would show such a spirit of selflessness? And indeed, we can never match what Jesus did in that sense, and yet, do we not know of people who show such a spirit of selflessness? Are they not a great example for us also to follow? Jesus is the ultimate example, but we know of others who, inspired by him, are also great examples. And obviously, we as Christians should show that same spirit. 
We should not pretend that we are privileged characters. We should not pretend that we are the center of the universe or anything like that. Rather, we should recognize that in order to share in the wondrous glory of Christ, we also have to share in his servanthood and in his suffering. And that's the point of one of my favorite books that you may have heard of um, called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And the point that Thomas Akempis raises is that everyone wants to share in the glory of Christ and be in heaven with Jesus Christ, but who among us wants to share in his sufferings? Who among us wants to share in his self-sacrifice? And yet, that is what the Christian is called to do. We cannot get to heaven without going through the cross. That makes discipleship much harder, but also much more worthwhile. And so we should forget our own privileges, and we should also take the long view, which can be difficult as well. Jonathan Swift, the great satirist, once wrote that vision is the art of seeing things that are invisible. And the wonderful poet William Wordsworth wrote, To whom in vision clear the aspiring heads of future things appear like mountaintops whose mists have rolled away. And someone asked Alfred Lord Tennyson about his greatest desire in his life, and he immediately said, a fuller vision of God. And a churchman of the Middle Ages said that perfect blessedness consists in a vision of God. And so all of these statements reflect our need to take a long look or to take the long view of life, of existence. And that's what Jesus did when he left his glory place for the very difficult, for the agonizing place that he would be occupying on the cross. He left the splendors of heaven for the sufferings of earth. And he did this because he envisioned a kingdom of love consisting of people who had been redeemed from their sins. And so he knew that immediately in front of him, in the short term, in the medium term, there were hard days ahead. But his goal was always in sight. Again, a good lesson for us. Short-sightedness never wins victories. A guide showing uh, showing tourists through a large university pointed to a statue of Alexander the Great as a dreamy-eyed boy, and he said to the group, he who conquers a world must first dream that he has conquered it. Not so much conquering, but redeeming the world was Jesus' goal. It was his purpose in life. And he would not be led astray by shortcuts. The basic message of the three temptations that Jesus faced, remember that, how Satan tempted him in the wilderness, was very simply this, shall I take the long look or shall I try to gain my kingdom by superficial methods? And so Christians face that question in their personal lives and preachers face it 
all the time in trying to understand what they should do with their congregation, how they should work with their congregation. I think any Christian goes through that. Worthwhile goals will not be achieved overnight. And that's a very hard lesson. Well, perhaps more for some of us than others, it is for me. I like to see quick results. I don't like laboring in the vineyards with apparently little fruit to show for it for a long time. And yet, there is a certain goal in mind. There is a goal that I think we all share to reach people with the gospel. And so how is that going to be achieved? It will not be achieved overnight. It will not be achieved in an easy way. But if we have faith, it will be achieved. It will be achieved according to God's plan and purpose and in his timetable. And also, that leads me to the third point, which is that we are to remain true to our commitment. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to want to give up and walk away. Now, Jesus, amazingly to think about this, but Jesus may have wanted to quit at certain times. His enemies sought to kill him, we know that, and his friends did not always understand him. In fact, I think they rarely really understood him. Even his family sometimes seemed to be a hindrance rather than a help. There are so many accounts in the gospel of how even his family didn't understand him, about how his friends misunderstood him, about how many enemies he had, about how fickle people were that they were following him one day and abandoned him the next. How frustrating. But Jesus had set his mind to a great task. He was completely dedicated to doing his duty, to fulfilling the plan and purpose of God. And he never wavered from that. Could he have been tempted to walk away? I think he was. I mean, it says in the Bible, after all, that he was tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. So being tempted is not a sin, but giving into the temptation is a sin, dwelling on it. Now, when we think of Jesus and his purpose, his unwavering purpose, we have to remember that he knew that the cross was coming, and even the prospective agony of the cross did not deter him from his purpose, even that. And so how can we do less? Because we're not confronted really with a cross, we're confronted maybe with burdens, and sometimes we fail to distinguish between a burden and a cross. We speak of our cross as if it were a burden. But actually, a cross should not be endured reluctantly, but taken up voluntarily. And again, that goes against our human nature. Jesus took up the cross voluntarily. We all know that he had the power and the ability to avoid it if he wanted to. But he took it up. And we are called upon to also take up our cross, whatever it may be. It's not going to be the same for every single person. But there is a common element of self-sacrifice, of giving up of oneself in order to follow Jesus Christ. That is the cross that we bear. 
We share in Christ's redemptive work in this world. And that means sharing in his cross. And dedicated people, truly dedicated people, have gladly accepted not only a goal in life, but also a task that enables them to meet that goal. No matter what the task is, no matter how hard it is, the task that helps them to meet the goal is the worthy and glorious task. If someone, if as someone said long ago, the mind is the measure of the man, where do you rate? The ideal person, as pictured by, say, the psalmist, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates day and night on the law of God. And to a large extent, one's thought patterns determine that person's pattern towards life. Now, the Old Testament says a lot about the heart. But the Hebrews thought of the heart not only as the seat of affection, you know, as we do, we think about affection coming from the heart, but it's also the home of one's thought process. So it means a lot more than just, say, a Valentine's Day sentiment. And likewise, the mind is more than the seat of one's intellect. We both think and feel with our minds, don't we? I mean, yes, we, you know, metaphorically we talk about the heart being the seat of feelings, but really our feelings, physical feelings and emotional feelings, are based in our minds. And so for this reason, we may use the expression that a person needs to get right in his thinking. Right in his thinking. One writer has said that we do not think our way into right living nearly as much as we live our way into right thinking. And so Jesus is our supreme example in both his attitude and his action. Attitude and action are important. Remember what I said about the Pharisees. They tried to do the right thing. They were trying to carry out the right actions, but their attitude was wrong. Well, most of their attitudes. I know, I always make the caveat there were some, like Nicodemus, who were open to Jesus, but most of them were not. Their attitude was wrong. Now, Paul's career, his amazing career, resulted from his spirit being united with God's spirit. And this union was possible because He had sublimated every desire to the will of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul, if he had been left to himself, if he could just do what he wanted to, may very well have done something very different than what he ended up doing. And I think that's true of any Christian. There are always paths to choose, directions in which we go. And our desires, our feelings, our wants may lead us in in a certain direction, And yet, if our spirit is united with the spirit of God, we will go in another direction. Again, it doesn't come naturally to us, it's hard, but it can still be done if we are open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, people have to surrender personally to Jesus Christ and be willing to follow him. When we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not like a contract between equals. No, in order to have a relationship with him, we do have to submit ourselves to him. We can't just say we are 50-50 partners in this. No, Jesus is everything. 
And we will have everything if we accept Him, but we cannot accept Him in order to have everything. That again comes down to attitude and action. If you are thinking about accepting Jesus Christ, or anyone is thinking about accepting Jesus Christ because they think they're going to get something out of it, and that's the reason why they do it, then sadly they're getting it wrong. You accept Jesus Christ for the sake of Jesus Christ. You accept Him because you know without Him you are nothing. And purely by grace you will receive all the gifts that He gives you. Undeserving as you may be, nonetheless the gifts are there. It is truly a new birth. It is truly a new way of being. And so when this event takes place, when this relationship becomes effective, when you become born again by the Spirit and have that relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a new nature that is imparted to us. And that does enable us to think in the way that Jesus thought and to act in the way that he acted. With, of course, the caveat that we are still subject to human limitations in a way that he was not. And yet, it is possible to imitate Christ in his devotion, in his selflessness, in his sacrifice. And that is what is needed for everyone in the church. Not to strive for position, not to be jealous of one another, not to quarrel, not to be selfish but to keep in one's heart and mind the attitude of Jesus Christ and to follow his actions. And what a great purpose that is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.